How's it going, guys? Scott from Yellows of Horror, and I am joined today with... Hello, Colin. Good evening, guys. And Alan, how are you all doing? Cool. So, <clears throat> so on tonight's podcast, we actually have a really, really extra special guest and friend of all of ours, to be fair. And um, really, really looking forward to this one. It's going to be a lot of information coming down. It's going to be a lot of stories. And, you know, I, for one, really am excited about this uh, this guest. So does anyone else want to say something before we get him in? Uh, just that it's, you know, within within the whole zombie uh, characters of the entire Romero universe, you probably have one of the most iconic. So I'm really, really looking forward to it. Yeah, I think every fan of Dawn of the Dead is uh, going gonna, is gonna to know this guy for sure. Yeah, so uh, <clears throat> I'm going to be in well, inviting Jim Cutts, the helicopter zombie from Dawn of the Dead, to our podcast. So let's get him in. Yes, Jim, you're looking well. How are you doing? I'm alive. <laughs> <laughs> Despite reports to the contrary. Yes, yes. How ca- How about you all? Yeah, we're all doing too bad. Yeah, um, good, yeah. good, good, yeah, good. Surviving. <laughs> surviving. <laughs> It's yeah. Friday, you say? No, it's <laughs> Monday, though, right? Yeah, I know. Yeah. So, yeah, so what we're going to do is, Jim, we're going to, if it's okay with you, um, ask you a couple of questions about uh, not not just Dawn of the Dead, like your acting career as in general, because judging by your IMBD, you've got quite a wealth of acting roles. So we'd love to hear anything about any of your roles and what are you, what's coming up. And, well, yeah, please <laughs> talk to us about any of your acting Actually, I was just going through, you like right now. Um, actually, I was just going back through the archives at the University of Pittsburgh, and that's where uh, the George Romero archives are located. And, however, the same archivist is archiving the uh, theater company I worked with in Pittsburgh back in the late 1970s, the Ironclad Agreement. And all of the materials, the scripts and songs and everything from those theater productions, which we toured all over the place, including in Edinburgh uh, for the Fringe Festival, they're also in the same archive as the George Romero archives. Cool. 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 That's really cool. They have a great piece of work, those archives. They're really doing well to get all that stuff catalogued and get it out there for everyone to enjoy. It's a good, good piece of work they're doing there. Well, what's, what stirred it up, the uh, d- producer, director we had with the Ironclad Agreement contacted me about two weeks ago and said, we're just doing an update to make sure we have everything, all the bits and pieces. Do you have any just little tidbits you'd like to share? And four pages of writing later, I said, let that go for now and I'll see if I can find anything else. So I started going through and I found boxes of the original scripts that we had, uh, newspaper clippings, uh, playbills, and everything like that, all in a large cardboard box. Well, in the same box is another theater company archive that I worked with in Pittsburgh, uh, the Pittsburgh Laboratory Theater, which is where I first met Julia, who was involved with the Ironclad Agreement and got that started. So I was with the Pittsburgh Lab Theater for a couple of years. And just to look back and see, geez, how scarily young I was. (laughs) (laughs) 
um, plus newspaper clippings, reviews, and all of that good stuff. But one of the things that really struck me, we did a production which was called Prologue with Pittsburgh Laboratory Theater. And one of my monologues in that was based on Eugene Ionesco's play, and it had to do with the plague. And fortunately, I had a friend who had done a video of my presentation of that. And I got that translated or converted to a digital format. It's, I'd say, fairly rough right now. And I'm trying to dress it up a little bit and make it palatable. But it's pretty scary in light of what's going on today in terms of they're telling you to be locked up and, you know, the authorities are on the street and you should not be. And we'll take the bodies and just throw them into the fire. And I, should I even put that out there? <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of funny how uh, theater and, and sometimes film can be prescient in terms of uh, it seems either bizarre, out of the question or imaginative at the time. Then a few years later, it doesn't seem so strange. <laughs> definitely not. Definitely, yeah, you can you can definitely say that about a lot of things. And I know we were going to try and avoid it for at least some time, but you can definitely say that about Dawn of the Dead. It relates to so much we see. I mean, very very briefly, I'll just tell you what uh, there was a there was a situation in the UK. We were all in lockdown for a long long time, like you guys over there, and uh, the very sort of day it started to open up and things started to open up hundreds and hundreds of people flocked to clothes shops cheap clothes shops to buy clothes and literally people were queuing from like 3 4 a.m when the shop didn't open till 8 or 9 and there was hundreds of them hundreds and hundreds and it just made me think why do they come here it must be because <laughs> of some memory from before and i thought you know, it has lots of echoes it yeah. sure certainly does it certainly does and, uh, you know, I, I get asked a lot of questions about Dawn of the Dead. And uh, you guys are kind of like super fans. And I was wondering if I can turn this around a little bit and ask each of you. I know, it's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> and I appreciate the photo you have behind you, too. Calling yeah. <laughs> up my under-the-wing shot there uh, when George or Tom took me under his wing. But um, I was wondering about your perception. What caused Dawn of the Dead to be such a factor in your life, either in appreciation of film or in appreciation of um, prehistory, in a sense, of what it presaged? Okay. Yeah, I'll go first as well. <clears throat> I had a really, really cool bump. And she used to let me watch uh, horror films when I was like, quite young. And um, one of the first ones she let me watch was Night A Nightmare on Elm Street. And from there, it kind of stemmed sort of like into thinking. And I preferred zombies <laughs> over slashes and stuff like that. So I asked my mum uh, for, for a zombie film. So she, she showed me Day of the Dead. Day of the Dead was the first one that I saw. And you have to understand, I mean, this was 1987, 1988. And from there, I was hooked onto, like, George Romero's zombies from Day of the Dead. And then she then showed me Dawn of the Dead. And when I watched Dawn for the first time, it was that film. That's the one, though. That's the definitive one for me. Um, 
I don't know what it was. I think we've mentioned it in previous podcasts. The the survivors, if you will, that they're smart. You know, they're clever. So you kind of try and root for their survival. That the the. I just I felt like I was one of the team when I was watching it from being younger. So this is what I would do. Or so you can't you kind of feel like you're there and you're helping them. You're running down the corridors with them, and it's great. So it, yes, it was one of the first films that really hooked me at such a young age. And from there, from there on, Dawn of the Dead has been in my top five favorite films of all time. And even when we met a few years ago, and even last year at the Living Dead weekend, I told you. Um, that one of my favourite scenes is your scene because it made me, in so much, in so many ways, laugh at how great it was and how the fact that, you know, it, you prove how zombies are mindless because it was going around, but any any living thing wouldn't stand up into it, but a zombie would he? Because he, he's only focusing on his meal effectively. He's sure, focusing on sure. his kill. He's not focusing on what's going around and. It was a true definition of a zombie, and that was the first time that I ever saw it, and it was it was brilliant, and I loved it. And obviously, that's that I have, I have you to thank for that, Jim. So yeah, well, so Dawn of the Dead. That's that's what hooked me onto Dawn of the Dead. I think for me, it's just, I think for me, it's just so relatable. I mean, I, I discovered the whole uh, universe through uh, Day of the Dead. That was the first one I saw, and I loved that. I had to go and find more. And found uh, found Dawn was blown away, and I think one of the reasons is because, as much as it's you know a kind of like fantasy in that it's apocalyptic end of the world zombies, it's also kind of grounded in a, in a lot of reality, and you can relate to the four main leads, you can relate to the situation they're in, and of course the great thing with a lot of George's films is that there were no sound studios, there were no sets. I mean, he went into real kind of Pittsburgh, real places, and filmed. So, of course, you can put yourself in those places and relate to it and understand how you might, you know, uh, carry on in that situation and whether you might survive or not. And that's what just keeps fascinating with me. And, I, and every time I watch it, I can do that scenario running because there's always some different way or different angle of looking at it, you know, spotting something you hadn't seen before. I, I just think it's a great epic masterpiece. It's brilliant. I just love the whole film from back start to finish. And, of course, your scene, Jim, is just so iconic it just sticks with you afterwards you know you just that's one of the things you like remember one thing i love doing is when i come out the cinema i want to talk about the film dissect the film try and understand as much as i can and the one thing is like wow did you see that guy he got his head chopped off by the helicopter blade whoa you know that's that's for me anyway no that's that's terrific and i i think what both of you have mentioned so far is that it has a universal appeal and you know one of the things george romero would had responded when someone asked him the question, why do you think zombies are so scary in your movies? And he said, well, of course, he never really called them zombies. They were just the undead or, or ghouls. Uh, and he said, because they're your neighbors. Mm. And if you look around today, of course, uh, those are the people you're supposed to count on, depend upon to help you out. And the ones you're looking out for, and maybe Maybe we're not looking out as much as we should for our neighbors today uh, and they have the same expectation that maybe they're not looking out as much for us. So it's like a growing isolationism. Alan, how are you doing on that question? Um, well, I think for me, I mean, I was introduced to 
the genre sort of through uh, the original 1968 Night of Living Dead. And yeah. I kind of watched it and I was just hooked. I just loved I mean, I think the thing for me that, that I like, especially with, with Dawn as, as well, is you kind of get is kind of it is like the world against a group of people. You know, it's really, a, you know, there's no escape. And it's not more about, you know, who's going to survive. It's how do you survive? You know, it's every day there's, there's something you have to do to survive. You know, when you look at it like, the, okay, so these days are a little bit different right, with COVID. But before COVID and stuff, you know, you could generally go to work and feel safe, you know, whereas the thing like with Dawn, I think there's every day that passes, there's something they have to do to survive. And I kind of really like that sort of idea of the story. Um, but for me as well, I think the thing that really drew me to it is it's something you touched on yourself, Jim, was um, it's just how raw it is. It's just such a great film, the way it's filmed. There's no everything is done practically. You know, all the atmosphere is created. It's not created on a on a a, a computer in a lab or anything like that it's it's what you guys bring to the film which makes it atmospheric and and draws you in and you know i'll just to tell you a little quick whenever you know anyone says to me dawn of the dead you know the, the the one thing i always think of when everybody says that is obviously your scene that's the one that stuck out the most and you know and it's always been the way uh, since i was you know you know a, a youngster you know you know you got school anyone seen dawn and dead and the first thing you would think of me is you know the head going you know um so yeah you know it's it's you know they're the things that drew me into it and i think that's kind of what i love about dawn is just that it's so in my eyes it's so real it's you know there's it's real actors really you know putting their emotions on the screen it's not relying on like say like a film would these days it's it's really you know it's relying on the actors to tell the story and build the atmosphere and i think that's probably you know, one of the, you know, the the thing for me which makes me love that film so much. Sound well, track as well. It's interesting oh, you, you say that too because, uh, of course, uh, filmmaking was not a big industry in Pittsburgh. Night of the Living Dead was one of the first sort of breakthrough films that uh, put Pittsburgh on the map for filmmaking. And, of course, George Romero, you know, did Martin and, you know, several other films. And then Dawn of the Dead came in. So in that time, you had a lot of people who were working in theater in the Pittsburgh area. You had several universities, uh, Carnegie Mellon University, uh, uh, Duquesne University, where I, lived, where I went to school, Point Park University, owned the Pittsburgh Playhouse. Uh, Tom Savini and I were in an alternative theater group at Point Park in college. That's where we met. We did theater together there. And after, and actually a couple of other people like Nick Tallow, who was in Dawn of the Dead and also worked for, for Mr. Rogers and is in the, the Mr. Rogers movie, does a great job. Uh, so it was a fantastic little, um, I'd hate to say Petri dish of <laughs> us germs just kind of growing and developing and kind of going our own different ways. And yet then finding our way back, because after college, uh, Tom went in the Army, uh, I went in the Army, we both went to Vietnam in different places and locations. He went in as a, a combat photographer, I went in as a combat medic. And, uh, you know, a couple years later, we gravitated back to Pittsburgh. And that's where I ran back into Tom. And he was uh, teaching makeup and special effects at Carnegie Mellon University. So there was a lot of uh, 
I'd say um, acting ability. And there weren't that many theaters. So there was a lot of competition. If you wanted to get a good paying job working in theater in Pittsburgh, you had to basically have a New York address. Oh, well, then, yeah, we'll respect you if you've got a New York address. People would set up and get either through their friends or whatever addresses in New York to um, puff up the resumes a little bit and make it look authentic. Like, yes, I'm a New York actor. I demand high salaries and all the comforts of home and no red M&Ms. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> nice. So uh, it was it was kind of an interesting time, and into into that cauldron came this film, and in the film there are a lot of folks I worked with in theater, like like David Crawford and I worked together, David Early and I worked together, uh, and uh, we did some very strange roles in some very interesting locations and theater theater situations, so that that meant meant that there wasn't a lot of um, reliance on special effects there wasn't a lot of reliance on well go ahead and mess up if you need to because we'll fix it later no most of the people working on the film were stage actors which means you don't just say oh well let's let's repeat that line i didn't say it quite right i think i can do more emotionally or louder what no you start at the beginning of the play and you put everything you have in it from the very beginning to the very end. And there's no stopping. What happens if someone forgets a line or something breaks? Well, doesn't matter. You just keep going. If, if you have time, I'll give you quick, two quick incidents. We, had, uh, we did a dramatization of a book by Thomas Bell called Out of This Furnace. And it was about three generations of uh, immigrant Slovak labor in the, in the steel mills of... Uh, Western Pennsylvania and the formation of the U.S. Steel Corporation and the formation of the labor unions. So these are pretty heavy topics. Well, we we did that play and we broke it into a couple nights and we took it and we played it in the steel towns all around Pittsburgh, in the union halls, in the churches. And in one of the union halls, the place was just packed because those events were not so far in the past and people knew or knew the relatives of some of those characters who were portrayed. They were, you know, lightly disguised real people from that area. So I was playing this character, Juro Kracha, and he had this dog. Well, the dog through all the rehearsals just kind of sat quietly beside me and then I'd lead him off stage and, you know, we'd take care of that. And that would be a cue for somebody else to do something. And that's not what the dog did during the performance, of course. <laughs> uh, at some point, I stood up and the dog just ran around the stage and then jumped off the stage and ran down the middle of the aisle through the audience. I think he was barking his whole way to the end of the hall. Well, of course, I had two choices. One was to chase after him, and the other was to continue. So I just watched the dog go, and people were howling. I mean, not the dogs. The people were just howling because they thought it was hilarious. They weren't wasn't sure if this was part of the show, but they just thought it was a great interactive piece. So I just stood there with my hands on my hips and just, you goddamn dog. <laughs> and I went back to the rest of the show, the rest of the scene. 
So it's the it's the sort of thing you uh, you have to just kind of pick up and, and move with. And so when you're working in film and you have that sort of discipline, you don't expect that you're going to be doing two, three, four, five, six reshoots because every time you're putting everything you have into it. And that makes it special. So if you get used to the idea, well, I'm not going to do it so well this time because I know we're going to do three or four or five or six more shoots. Okay, yeah, do it from this angle. Yeah. There's just a different energy that comes out and a different intensity and a different immediacy. So when you talk about, you know, you can identify with those folks because it came sort of naturally. And I, I think that's a real tribute both to the casting that George did, the script, and literally the time and the, and the location with all this acting talent around, how it all just came together. It was, and for me, I feel extremely fortunate to have been lucky to be a part of that. That was cool. Yeah, really good. yeah, I, yeah, I can see that. Wow. Yeah, I, I love hearing stories like that because it just—it's what a lot of people don't see, you know. And just hearing stuff like that is—it's really, really cool. Thank you for sharing that, Jim. Oh, well, certainly, certainly. And you know, as I said, Tom—he and I'd worked together in theater in, in in school in college, and he's the one who cast me for the role as the helicopter oh. zombie. Um, I'd, I'd known Tom. We were both back in Pittsburgh after our army service. And he said, Jim, I've got this great role for you. George Romero, who, who did, um, George Romero? Who's Didn't ring a bell. Of course, it was 10 years since Night of the Living Dead. Yeah. Now he's a household name. And Tom said, uh, well, you know, he did um, Night of the Living Dead. And I thought, I've seen that, Tom. I've seen it. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember that. Well, here's the thing that you may not understand. At the time, there weren't that many movies being made in Pittsburgh, but I was making my living working in theater and as a live stage actor in a theater company, actually in a couple of theater companies. So there was also this factor that what if you were portrayed or did something in a movie that really set you apart in a totally negative way? That could affect your acting career, literally your ability to get a job, to get work in your chosen profession, as it were. So you also have to look at it from the standpoint of everybody in that movie, not knowing what it was going to turn out to be, was taking a risk. Because maybe they would literally be typecast, um, either as a horrible person, as a creature you didn't want to associate with or somebody whose language would not necessarily endear them to your mother or girlfriend, whatever. So it was risky. You're sort of saying, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to take that chance. And so for everybody who did take that chance, I salute them. It made the movie. Yeah. Mm, yeah. You, you don't realise they take on quite a big risk themselves until you hear it in that context. I mean, I mean, I would never have. I'm so glad you're, you know, uh, letting us know these stories because I would never have thought or made that that uh, connection back to the theatre. But it makes perfect sense. Yeah, yeah, I can completely understand it. Yeah, crazy. I have a quick question. Sure. The when the the helicopter song, as we know, is all it's it's iconic and it's going to be iconic until the 
start bringing releases out of it. So last year at the Living Dead weekend, you was asked to redo all the makeup, re-get set up, and all that kind of stuff. And I, I for one, I'm just going to go on the record and say I loved every second of that when they did it on the stage. I was stood there. I was hoping I could get sprayed with blood, but I didn't. And it was just brilliant. It was great. What was going through your mind? Because you looked so happy doing it. And it was total joy. Yeah, it was total joy. Uh, I have to tell you a little bit of background on that. That, you know, is not general knowledge, maybe. When I first did Dawn of the Dead, Tom said, well, we have to get you set up. and need, need you to come over to workshop, over to my workshop in his parents' basement. And we'll get the, the makeup and preparation and the prosthetics together. I didn't hear at that time, we're going to cast your entire face in algae and then have you breathe through a straw. And after 20 minutes or whatever, that hardens. And then we're going to pour plaster on top of that. So you just have to trust me. Because you're not going to be able to get out of that. You just Your life depends on breathing through this straw. And I'm like, oh, God, oh, so uh, we we got through that and peeled off that, and I was just so relieved just to have fresh air again. A couple of days later, Tom gives me a call and says, "Jim, hey, um, can you come in uh, over to, over tomorrow?" And I said, oh, "You know, we're rehearsing, but uh, I can come in after." He said, "Yeah, great." He says, "Cause uh, the plaster cracked. We have to do it all again." Oh, oh no! Oh, no. <laughs> oh God! I'm gonna go. Okay, so. Uh, Anything for the arts, you know, it's one for, the, one for the kipper or whatever. And so I went over, back again we did, went through the whole process again. Because the process at that time was you do alginate, which is kind of a plastic, rubbery sort of material, which takes the form of your face and it gets all the details. And it's really great for doing like a life mask. But when you take that off, if you just peel that off and set it on the table, it would... You know, just kind of flatten out. You know, so that's why you have to put the plaster on top of that. And so when I was asked if I wanted to do this again, I said, "Okay, uh, I'll give it a shot." You know, if it if it all comes together, because it was kind of iffy whether they could get the airport this you know last year because. Yeah. Airport's been on, uh, on the market, I think, for maybe two years. So the for sale sign is there. They were unsure whether that whole thing could be pulled off. And it was getting closer and closer to the time of the convention. And finally, I get the call from Jerry Gurgley. Now, Jerry, I'd worked with in another, uh, another film or two. And he happens to be a makeup expert who is in charge of Tom Savini's school, the Douglas School of Makeup and Effects, and he's done that for about 18 years. Well, he and uh, his girlfriend, Jennifer, were going to be the ones to do the, the makeup and the prosthetics for me for the show, the 40th, you know, the anniversary last year. And I said, well, uh, you know, okay, uh, uh, let's see what happens. And Jerry said, can you, can you stop over so we can do a head cast? And I said, Jerry, I live in Pittsburgh. I'm four and a half hours away. I'm tied up, you know, this and then and that. And that. I, I said, there's no way I can do that. I said, you know, it's, it's getting kind of close to the time to the show if you think you can do it. He said, well, do you have a tape measure? 
And I said, oh, I see, I see. Oh, yeah, I, I got a tape measure. He said, all right, I want you to, you know, take that. <laughs> and I need you to go from this to there and give me the measurements there. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. These measurements. And I'm thinking, cool, Jerry's a good guy. And he said, that's fine. You won't have to come to Pittsburgh for a headcast or anything. Two days before the show in Pittsburgh, I was in the hotel room. That was that Thursday evening. We were going to do the effect on stage Saturday. And Jerry and uh, Jennifer came, came over to the hotel room and said, we want to try this on for fit. They had made it, constructed it all from those simple measurements I gave them, slipped it all on, and said, bam, it fits perfectly. Uh, thank you, Lord. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but it was just a testimony to a couple things. One, when Tom was doing things, he pioneered a lot of materials and techniques. In those 40 years since, a lot of things have come about to make those types of effects easier, faster, uh, less stressful on the individual, also easier on the skin because some of those materials can be caustic. You get burned on one side, you know, that burn might be there for a week or two weeks. If you've got to do other scenes, it's still going to be there. Mm. So uh, working with Jerry and knowing his level of uh, expertise and professionalism, and I told him, I said, I, I have sensitive skin. I, I have to be careful. I'm doing other things as well. He said, you know, we, we've got that addressed. So uh, when it came time to do the thing, the thing, up on the stage, there was Paul Musser, who was the airport zombie, and myself yeah. up on the stage. And we each had a team of makeup experts there. And we kind of started from scratch. And it was it was a beauty to behold in terms of the audience. Yeah. Because you could just feel the love and the energy emanating from And it's that combination, again, of being theatrical, but also on stage yeah. with a live audience. There's nothing oh, really... Yeah that so the energy was just flowing you have all the folks in the seats now of course this is down on the first floor and everybody is also all around the balconies yeah looking down taking pictures commenting um, you know yelling encouragement and so you have a couple shows going on there's the show of, of Paul being made up and they'd made him up the previous year so I think his went up a lot faster and mine was uh, a little little trickier, I'd say, because it's the first time we'd run the blood tubes up and we're just kind of improvising on stage. And what was really neat was to have Tom Savini, when I stood up, to do the, the pull yeah. that took off the top of the head, the top pieces off the head. And to have Tom do that. And it was just surrounded by family and, and love and crew and, you know, people that you could trust. It's not like, I'm going to jump off this bridge and I hope somebody catches me. I'm working with people I've never done this with before. Uh, this could be a serious <laughs> uh, bad thing if the rope breaks or, you know, the bottom comes up faster than the rope. It stops me. But to be working with that level of people who were so passionate, so professional, and to be among the fans who so appreciated the movie, the scenes, um, and what it took to make that scene happen, to get a taste of it, to get some insights into it. It was just a beautiful day, and I was floating for about two days at least. Yeah. 
Yeah. You're asking a question, Scott. Yeah. <laughs> I see the clock sometimes just because I get a little wrapped up in it too. But thank no, you. No, it's, it's, it's mesmerizing just hearing you talk about it. I could say it all night. <laughs> just, just on that, I've got a quick question. We, uh, we were lucky enough to speak with Ginny Jeffries recently. Uh, and I think she said her first day on the set was your scenes, funnily enough. Uh, but she was letting us know that later on when she was going to play the blonde zombie, uh, George sent Tom away to say, you've got to make her ugly, which, of course, is a real challenge even for someone like Tom. Uh, <laughs> and they went away and they did their makeup and they, you know, got her sorted, brought her back to set. And George went, no, 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 she's not ugly. And I've got to make her more ugly. And he sent him away and they had to work on her some more. Was what was your first encounter with George when he saw you all kind of made up and ready to go? Was he happy with that? And did you get on with it, or was there any little thing that you had to do? Uh, there were no ripples that I knew of at all. It was like a total buy-in. Um, George brought on board people that he trusted, who were professionals, who knew what they were doing. And Tom, of course, was uh, one of the consummate people in that um, engine that made things happen. Uh, Tom says, uh, when George called him about making the film, he said, well, how many ways can you think of to kill people? You know, I'm talking <laughs> about maybe about 100. And yeah. so George trusted Tom to do mm -hmm. those effects. All of the things that required timing, uh, multiple people, George kind of turned the direction over to Tom at that point. So, oh, okay. I mean, George knew the scenes. Uh, George directed the stuff under the under like the airport wing, the air, the airplane wing, excuse me, that you you have behind you, Colin. That was done by George. He said, "You know, I want you to you know to come in here. We're gonna you know have the newspaper blow around, and um, and then we'll, we'll do this." And then he said, "Oh." So George was handling all of that when it came to the after going across the field to the boxes. That's pretty much when Tom took over. He said, okay, uh -huh. now you're going to be doing, uh, going up this way. I want you to go here and there. Uh, and then uh, when you get to the top, you know, we're going to do the effect. And there wasn't really a lot of direction. I guess, again, when you work with people on stage, you get to a level of trust that you sort of intuitively know what they expect. And you know what to expect of them. So I think uh, Tom and I were close enough that we knew what we were doing. And when it came time for that to happen, even though we had backup clothing and everything to, if we had to redo a, redo the scene, do a reshoot, everything went off, you know, the first time. Perfectly. Awesome. George, George watched it and, you know, just said like, beautiful. That's, you know, that was, that was great. And so that felt terrific. In a sense, it was a letdown. It's like, Dang, this is so much fun, I want to do it again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can imagine, yeah. Did it all get nailed in a single take? Was it literally one go, everything perfect? Everything was done in a single take. Amazing. Wow. Under the under the wing, the walk across the field, on the boxes. Uh, they did, you know, a change of camera angles for some still shots and a few things of that nature, but yeah. everything went as a single take. But again, that required the timing of somebody pulling off camera, Tom and the other fellow who was behind the boxes, pumping the blood up, the tubes up th from my back up through the the shirt and embedded into the uh, the appliance in the head. And 
so all of that had to go off in a kind of a well well timed coordinated bit mm-hmm. and it did because you know tom, tom prepared before gave it a lot of forethought so when you see it it just kind of looks natural it goes by in my mind of course too fast <laughs> Slow it down. More screen time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Excellent. But okay. what makes it what makes it fun is that even though it was not, you know, the the longest scene, it was so memorable. I mean, geez, what, as an actor, what, what more could you ask for? <laughs> no, I can see that. Yeah, definitely. A little bit of a, an outside of the box question. So your character in Dawn of the so let's say now he's alive. Were you a resident in this little suburb area around there, just walking your dog, and you managed to get bit by a zombie and you were just walking? Or are you a mechanic for the um, airport and you're just going back to work because that's what you are? It's an instinct, remember, because that's what uh, Roger says. <laughs> I would love to speculate on that because there's a lot of, there are a lot of different uh, backstories for some of the characters and some for me, of course. But I, I also have been in, in discussions for the last couple of years with uh, someone who is interested in doing a film about my character. Oh. And so I can't really discuss that. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. No, no, no. no that's, that's fine, but it's good to want... see there's something in the works, though. Yeah. And I wouldn't, I, I, I can't really tell you much about what that backstory would be. Uh, I, I think it's kind of fun and interesting, and that's why I, I, I agreed that I would do it if you know if the script and financing are finalized and come together. But to uh, to mention it or to talk too much about somebody else's version of a backstory, if that's already built into this one, and it gets incorporated, somebody could say, "Oh, you're stealing my ideas." Yeah. You know, yeah. or so it's 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 just a little uh, touchy artistic issue. Well, what would it? I hope it happens. I really does because I think it would it would just be fun. It really would. Yeah. Well, fingers crossed. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'd love to see that. Jeez, do I'd I have, love to see that. That's if we can ever get out of out of the house to do movies again. <laughs> yeah, well, that's it. Yeah, <laughs> or to see them. Yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you what, let's 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 move uh, move on to uh, conventions, right? So obviously you you you're quite a big name in the uh, horror convention circuit, especially for like the George Romero ones or even other horror ones. Obviously, you do the Living Dead weekend as and when, and you've been over to the UK uh, once or twice during the Weekend of the Dead. And obviously, Weekend of the Dead is um, very, very close to all of us in this um, in this uh, show tonight. And we just want to know your thoughts on how did you come about it? How did you get asked? And what were your feelings about coming to the UK and thinking, are we actually, you know, is anyone going to know? I mean, what, what was what was the apprehension like? I had done a uh, show in the UK, I think it was memorabilia, um, maybe 10 years ago or, or, or more. And I'd, I'd done a show or two in Germany before. And I got in discussions with Marcus Lewis, and yeah. uh, who you all know. And he said he was talking about starting a um, Weekend of the Dead in, in the UK. And he would like to, you know, start one as a small one and, and, and see if there would be enough interest, if it could grow. 
And uh, David Crawford was going to be in Germany, so it wouldn't really take that much to bring him over from Germany to the UK because he was doing something else at that time. And uh, he could get David together. And did I have any ideas? And uh, Because I had met Marcus at the show in Germany previously, and that's why he and I had known each other. And the more he talked, I could just tell how passionate he was. And he he mentioned this person and that person, and they're coming from here and there, and they would help with this and that. And I thought, Marcus, you know, what if I just came over? Uh, he said, you know, we, we can't, we don't have a budget for that. And I said, no, I'm, I'm just talking about, I'll come over, and if I'll, I'll you know, pop in and, and do the show with you. And it wasn't a three-day convention. This was like at... Uh, the Fab Cafe for what four hours, five hours. So you know it's, it's a wee bit risky. And he said, "Well, if you would do that, he said, I'll pick you up at the airport. You know, we'll feed you, we'll house you, we'll we'll take you up to Manchester." And uh, I said, "Well, uh, how far are you from Stonehenge?" <laughs> <laughs> you throw that into the deal, and I'll come over. <laughs> awesome. But we had a great time, and David uh, Crawford was there, and uh, we we went to Stonehenge Stonehenge together as well. Uh, so that was off crossed off my bucket list. And I said, "All right, now let's do Manchester." But it was just such a love fest in Manchester, and for a limited amount of space and a massive amount of love in that space, it was uh, just an indescribable feeling, and it was just inspirational, and. Marcus, you know, later said, you know, it was it was very successful and people loved it. And they and a lot of people said that they missed it and they wish they could do it again. And I said, well, you know, I hope you, you know, at least made a little something to give you a start to to do another show next year. And he said, you know, and, and by the way, uh, you know, you'll be coming back for that. And I said, no, you just had me for this. And, you, you know, you need to have, you know, some other guests and so forth. And he said, no, one of the fans is going to take care of your your flight in your hotel. I said, are, are you kidding me? He said, no, there's that much affection and, and passion and, and love for the George Romero films. And they really want to, you know, continue that and, and share that and help it grow. And I thought, oh my God, you know, that that's a sort of thing that doesn't happen every day. And it's, it's a very humbling feeling personally that somebody would do that and make that happen. And so I was just absolutely delighted. And I said, if there's anything I can do, I will I will do it. I, I'll be happy to do it. Uh, I'm not sleeping with anybody's dog, but I'll be happy to do most <laughs> anything else. <laughs> Excellent. Brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant. It's just, it's just, it's just, it's just, it's just great. You know, the whole family the Romero family the the fans and how they all come together is well, I was talking to this uh, to a friend of mine the other day how because he said to me because my my I don't even know it's behind me I've got picture that that picture there's actually me and you uh, a weekend 2018 and then obviously I've got the one with uh, the the Roger and uh, Peter but my my front room is just full of Romero pictures um there's there's pictures everywhere and my friends keep saying to me do you not think it's a little weird? And I was just like, well, no, because what's your favourite film? And he went, well, my friend said to me, well, his favourite film is like Independence Day with Will Smith and stuff. 
I went, you know, the chance of you meeting Will Smith and then talking to him on almost on a personal private level. He went, yeah, that'll never happen. I said, now that this is the difference between the film that I like and I love. These people are absolutely humble, genuine and nice people that they they want to hear you talk about their their art. So they want, you know, and they love it and we love it. And it's just one massive, like, family event. For instance, like when we was in Pittsburgh last year, uh, me, Colin, yourself, um, Russ Dreiner and John Amplis and a few and everyone else. We went to that Mexican restaurant and had dinner together. And yeah, yeah. oh, that was great. <laughs> yeah, and that's the thing. I mean, I said you don't get to do that with, you know what I mean. We mm. this is a brilliant, brilliant atmospheric feeling to have, and I I don't want it ever to end. I mean, I'm begging Marcus to do another weekend of the dead, and I said I'll finance the whole thing if we can get everyone back in. <laughs> And I'm gutted that we can't get over to Pittsburgh this year because when June got cancelled, and I was like, oh, sorry about that, it's been mauled by my cat. Um, when June got cancelled and then November got cancelled for us, I was just like, bugger. <laughs> just one second, I'm getting mauled here. Go over there. You know. We're going to get over there, though, Jim. <laughs> sorry we'll about over that. There. We will definitely get over there some yeah. point in the future. We're definitely going to get over there. I was just going to ask quickly, uh, and I... I appreciate you may not be able to talk in depth about some of this, but I was just looking at some of your credits and you've you've got a lot going on, Jim. You seem to be quite busy. Uh, You know, from 2019, you've got films like Your Big Foot and Remnants and and other things going on. Just wondering if you could tell us some some of the stories around them and how they came about and where people could perhaps go and find that stuff. Oh, sure. Um, One of the things that made George Romero great, I think, was that he started making films because he had his own ideas. They were pretty much independent films. They were not big studio productions, which meant he could keep true to his ideas and change things along the way. And it didn't have to be, okay, well, you need to bring in a love interest over here and it has to be this person, you know, who's the producer's daughter or something like that. So I I think uh, for George, independent filmmaking was an inspiration for a a lot of people. They they saw what could be done, not necessarily on a big budget, but with the right people, the right imagination, the right locations, and enough planning and forethought. So I've always loved and supported independent films. I have to say, not all of them are quality production. (laughs) There are a lot of people who, you know, oh, let's get some clothes out of the attic and I think we can borrow an old microphone from so-and-so and, oh, this person has a camp. Some of it starts that way. But if you look at things like Plan 9 from Outer Space, which was once considered one of the worst movies in the world, uh, it was an Ed Wood production. And Ed Wood was a guerrilla filmmaker. He made one film after another. And they'd set up on a sidewalk and be rolling film and they'd ah, the cops are coming. You know, we've got to chuck it all in and, and, and hide because we're not supposed to be here. We don't have a permit or anything like that. So there was there's a certain level of excitement and uh, uh, but the originality. So when, when people call and they say, Hey, we, we wanted we want you to be in this film, that's can you tell me about it? Um, yeah, there's this cabin in the woods. <laughs> 
<laughs> Excellent. <laughs> uh, so I think I'm busy that weekend, but thanks anyway. You know, <laughs> I've done one or two that I I sometimes in retrospect wish that uh, I'd read more of the script and that they hadn't changed it at the last moment. But uh, for the most part, I've really enjoyed working with the people in the independent films. And these are smaller independent films. And by the way, uh, as you say, on, on IMDb, the independent or, uh, Internet Movie Database, is uh, a listing, I, I think I have maybe 25 films or something there, either acted in or helped produce. But also on my website, Hellazombie, H-E-L-I-Z-O-M-B-I-E, hellazombie.com, I have a couple of them listed that I actually have DVDs of or Blu-rays, oh, cool. Blu-ray copies of. And that's a, like remnant, excuse me, Remnants and uh, Darkness Waits. Uh, Darkness Waits is an interesting one, too, because that was an interesting film uh, produced by Libby McDermott. It was her second film, a female f filmmaker uh, just getting started. And uh, one of the actors in that was Conrad Brooks, who happened to be one of the last remaining live actors from Plan 9 from Outer Space. Oh, wow. Awesome. And he was a good friend of ours. So so sometimes there are these little associations or tie-ins or friendships. Um, somebody will say, uh, so-and-so worked with you in a film, and they ask if, uh, and they told me that I could ask you, and I said, well, if, they'll, if they're vouching for you, I'd like to see the script. And uh, I've seen several scripts that I've turned down for a variety of reasons. And uh, at a certain point, it's just that either it's been done or I'd like to see some originality or I want to do something that's fun for me, too, yeah. as well as fun for the audience. And un unrelenting gore um, just doesn't doesn't do it. And some people think that that's what a horror movie is. It's just, you know, one kill after another. But it really isn't. And I think George Romero discovered that secret that, yeah, you can have scenes of gore, but you have to have the relationships between people. And the storyline is about how those bonds carry through in the midst of that adversity. And uh, I forget whether it was you, Scott, or you, Colin, who mentioned it's buying into the characters. And literally going through those on-screen on screen experiences with them. It's the same thing with live theater. Yeah. Uh, you vicariously live out these situations through those actors, through those characters. So that's why I love live theater and I love live movies. Well, movies, films, <laughs> but independent films. That's how I got involved with a number of the independent films. Uh, either somebody's I was friends with and they asked if I could do something or somebody who had seen other work that I'd done, and um, I think I have a like a 20-minute short on my website called Baloo, where I uh, play a, a very nasty bank robber, and uh, <laughs> it uh, was shot, you know, 10, 15 miles from my house, <laughs> so it was really easy. He said, you know, we can shoot this in a weekend. Well, three months later, you know, the just turned out that the location we were using was being occupied and he had a certain amount of time to use it. And then it was occupied again. And somebody, you know, you work with a number of different people. Uh, we got to the set for the first day and one of the actors said, showed up on time. Well, 10 minutes late. 
saw that everybody was there and said, well, I'm going to go and get some coffee. Well, we went inside the warehouse where we were going to do the shooting and lock the door. You're either going to do what you're there to do. You're not there to waste everybody else's time and goof off. So there's a discipline. And I admired that. To me, that's the collegial experience. That's respect for everybody who's there. So if you find that kind of a working relationship, brothers, cherish it. Mm. No, I can definitely agree with that. Definitely agree with that. We'll, uh, I will, uh, when this goes up on YouTube, we'll stick the Heli Zombie link under the video. Oh, okay. Well, great, and we'll do, we'll, we'll get that pushed down on our social media for your gym because I've, I've been on the website. It's great. It's got some great stuff. And yeah. uh, we definitely want to get that out to the fans. I'm sure they all know about it, but a little bit of extra pushing yeah. this close to Christmas when you can't visit the shops might, uh, might all help. Hey, so, might yeah. clearance sale. You never know. Uh, <laughs> a supply of hoodies over here. They're just looking for happy people to warm up. It is getting colder these days, you know. <laughs> so, yeah. you got to be prepared. Prepared. Right. So yes, um, what we'll do is, and um, on on that note there, Jim, uh, we'll end this uh, episode there. Unless Colin or Alan's got like, another. I have one last somber thing. I, I do uh, apologise in advance for putting this up, but it's kind of a thank you. But uh, you were really, really kind enough to do for Weekend of the Dead the narration on their George Romero tribute video. Uh, I know I probably can speak for the guys on Weekend of the Dead when we say that really touched a nerve. That was so great. And I just wanted to know what doing that was like, because it must have been must have been tough. But it really I think it really got to the fans. I think it was so great. I just wanted to mention it. You don't have to talk about it so if you don't want to. But it was I just thought it was really no, great. No, thank you for mentioning it, because when I was asked if I would do it. I was I was honored and t and intimidated. We're talking about a towering epic figure, George Romero. And how do you how do you express the love you have for somebody like that and what he's done for you and so many people? And and it, and it struck me that what he did, and he doesn't even know it because he's not here with us, is bring us all together mm. and beyond us, our ever-expanding circle of people. And to me, as I thought about it. That's really the magic, yeah. magic of how we connect. I don't know that there's another figure, maybe other than Mr. Rogers, who has touched so many people and, you know, so much, I would say, so closely to the heart yeah. because of the, the love and respect. And uh, if I faltered a bit in the, in the recording of that, I apologize, but... Um, to me, it was it was a, an honor to be able to do that tribute, and it it certainly brought up a lot of emotions in me and and feelings and appreciation and regret and um, just the knowledge that it's not something that was once and done, that it somehow has become a living entity like. We're the Romeroites, you know. <laughs> There's the Romero Foundation, but it's it's uh, regardless of what else we we do, our other interests or or beliefs or or day to day jobs, it doesn't matter. Yeah, it's something that yeah. brings us together, and and that seems so rare in the world today. And I don't mean to be cliche about that, but it's just too many things can tear us apart, and when you find something that can celebrate bring people together, and really bring out the best in people. 
my God, you got to support it. You got to do what you can. Well, that's it. I mean, just so to I, extend on here with the podcast too, yeah. and getting the information out and helping to keep that bond strong. That's it. Just to um, extend on what Colin said, I was kind of hoping we didn't push on that question because I didn't really want to say, Jim, your voice and your narration on that thing had me, a grown man, in tears. <laughs> I was sat there watching it and I was sat next to John Russo and uh, Laurie Cadill's husband, Jim. And we were just, but all three of us were just sat there and just pissed through our faces. And we were just like, that was amazing. So you did an absolute wonderful job on that narration and your voice just fit it perfectly and oh it was just brilliant beautiful it was beautiful but i i really appreciate that and you know it, it's a combination it's it's not just me it's it's the work and the research and and the details that went into finding the images yeah. about what was being mm-hmm. said and how it fit together and how it grew and those tributes to those who have gone and passed uh, who were friends, people we knew. And, and you know, it does. It, it brings out those moments of, again, regret and remembrance and, again, joyful celebration. So, again, I was very happy and honored to be part of that. And, and I thank you for your very kind comments. And I, I'm certainly... Certainly grateful and thankful to be have have worked with uh, the folks who put it together. All the visuals, without them, it you know. Uh, it, I believe it was Mark Burns and Gareth Wright that did the the video <laughs> editing to that. I think you're right, Scott. Yeah, they're the two names I remember. Uh, yeah, yeah, and both yeah. of them did a fantastic job. I mean, I think everyone who did that little small production is it's just such a huge thing. Yeah, and, and such and a know, imagery too. I know it's. Such a cliche, but literally, I don't think there was a dry eye in the house no, when that played. There wasn't. There wasn't. It was That's insane. Literally true. Yeah. In fact, well, actually, I think when we were doing, we were sat in front of Alan's stall. <laughs> yeah, I could, I could see you all. I could see you all. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 Brilliant. But yeah, on that very very somber note, we will. Um, yeah, we'll call this for the day, Jim. Thank you very much for your time. Yeah, thank, um, you. thank you, Jim. Thank you so much. Absolutely amazing having you on here. And we really, really do hope we do get to see you very, very soon when all this COVID nineteen thing is in the <laughs> on the back burner. So yeah, this too shall pass away. And again, <laughs> it's been an honor to be with you, to share time with you and the fans. And uh, I wish you the best. Yeah. Thank, Thank you, so you much. Jim. It means Thank so you. much. Thank you. Just say hi to her, Linda, for us all, and uh, we wish you both. We wish you both everything good for the future. Thank you. Thanks, Jim. Okay. Well, guys, Jim Crow, what a absolute phenomenal guest to have on. I mean, what one of oh. the most iconic zombies in Dawn of the Dead. You know, brilliant. And a scholar oh. and a gent and humble about it too. Just yeah. really amazing. Yeah. 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 I, I kind of, you know, saying to you guys earlier on, it's just sometimes you get guests on and you're just up and swept away with the stories that you're not actually thinking about any questions to ask them. You're yeah. just, you know, listening to what they're saying, you know, and that's, again, that's, that's, that was me again tonight. That's you know? it. Watching your face, Jody, just your mind was just going... Poof. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was brilliant. And well, I've, I've done it myself, so it's cool. I don't profess to be an expert of any sorts, but I heard new, fresh stuff there. I heard stuff yeah. I didn't know, stuff I hadn't heard before. Yeah. So to get swept up by it is understandable, because I was like thinking... Oh, I didn't know Tom pretty much directed that scene or that little bit of the scene. You know, that's um, that's amazing 
little tidbits there. That's it. And again, I mean, I won't say that I'm any professional or thinking about Dawn of the Dead or like, I, I, I know a lot about Dawn of the Dead, just like everyone else, but I didn't even know that. And I feel like I've learned something. Mm-hmm. So yeah. our laws of horror, we are teaching you things now. That's it, see? <laughs> Part of education. But yeah, just to, just to quickly uh, wrap it up now. So Jim Court, he has his own website. It's hellyzombie.com. .com, um, yes. Yeah, hell, yeah, so it's heli, so it's H-E-L, is it H-E-L-I? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, zombies, Z-O-M-B-I-E, .com. Go and make sure you go and check that out. He's got DVDs of Darkness Waits and Remnants. There is newest films that have come out. He has them at hand. Buy them, he'll send them. You know, he'll sign them. He'll sign them. He'll even send you a little note because he sends little notes every time. Because I've I've done it myself. I bought from him on, from his website, and he sent me a little a little letters saying thank you and autographed it. He is such a genuine gentleman, Jim, and I am so honoured. Just like the rest of us, are really really honoured that he was on this podcast with us. And I'm. I'm just going to go to bed tonight with a smile on my face, and I am watching Dawn of the Dead before. So, <laughs> <laughs> so on that note, has anyone else got anything to say? Only just to say, uh, like, subscribe, hit notifications in the YouTube, uh, get us out on social media, and you know that helps spread the word and allows us to get more and you know do more. So, please, please do all that good social media stuff that that we know you're good at. Hello, no, it's. That's all from me, Jim. Right, all the links and stuff down there for Garth and all that kind of stuff is going to be down in the description. Make sure you follow Garth, get on their Instagram, get on their Twitter, get on everything that's Garth-related and start smashing and sharing everything to do with Garth because Garth is huge and, if I'm honest, Garth needs us just like we need them. We want them to bring out all these things because Romero George had a lot of scripts. We need to see more George. George may be gone, but his legacy still survives and we need to support the gaff to get that stuff out. So go on, guys. Description below. Yeah. Yeah. On, the, yeah, on that note, the outlaws of horror are out.